You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. Today, I've got a special guest, a repeat guest of the show, Ducks Unlimited Chief Scientist, Dr. Tom Mormon. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm glad to be here again. Yeah, you know, and, and I talked to Tom offline a little bit, and we've had these conversations where we talk about, you know, submerged aquatic vegetation, different aquatics that ducks are kind of keying in on. And and we wanted, I just want to kind of pick his brain today and, and get into that discussion. But first of all, Tom, um, you're down here in Mississippi. And, you know, duck season is, is well underway. And, and I just wanted to kind of get an update from you on what you're hearing. You know, what's what's the word on the street for duck hunters in Mississippi? Yeah, um, generally it's been pretty tough. And the reason it's been tough, you know, I always fall, we always uh, seem like we fall back on the weather. But once again, it's really dry you know, across the Mississippi Valley over into Arkansas and, and Mississippi, Louisiana. So when you get a landscape that's really dry, it doesn't hold many birds. And sure enough, if you look at sort of the, some of the state surveys, like I just saw Arkansas's most recent survey and they're holding, you know, roughly 50% of the birds that they would normally hold this time of year. Um, that's a function of, of dryness in part and a function of warmth going far up into the upper Midwest. And so what birds we do have in the Valley, are concentrated on kind of managed wetlands uh, where people have the ability to pump or state or federal agencies have the ability to pump. And then, you know, there's lots of birds to our north to this day and, and scattered really across latitude and longitude. And that ends up making things tough. Um, fortunately, we're relatively early in the season, at least in Mississippi. Uh, so plenty of time for things to change, although we're in a, um, you know, if you follow sort of the NOAA weather, uh, we're in a La Nina year. And so that's typically a pretty dry year, a dry winter for us in the deep south. Uh, it could be okay if it's cold up north and it's a dry winter down here and you have the ability to pump water or you have the ability to hunt on a state area that has you know pumped water. It could be really good. But when it's dry and warm, it's tough sledding. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, you know, I know I have several good buddies who hunt in uh, in Mississippi and mainly north Mississippi. And and they've had their days, you know, they've had some some positive yeah. <laughs> results. But it's, it's tough sledding, like you say, you know, um, hearing a lot of reports where, you know, guys are, are shooting two or three birds or, or none. 
um, you know, which happens, but it is early, you know, and that's one thing, you know, we just need some weather up north for sure. We say that every year, but, uh, you know, this is dead. Like you said, if we're in a La Nina, it's definitely, uh, definitely needed this year. We need a big rainmaker or two, and then we need some, you know, some cold weather. And I'm not sure we'll get that in this kind of a split jet stream pattern, but we'll see. I know one thing, next chance I get, I'm going. <laughs> so you can bet on that. Yeah, you have to go. If you don't, you'll just be sitting at home wondering. So you got to go, and that's what that's what's fun about it. Yeah, that's right. You got to go. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, that's what it's about. And what I wanted to bring you on here today, like I said, we've we've talked briefly about, uh, and I've even done some magazine features where I've used you as a resource on you know feeding habits of puddle ducks, and and there's some fascinating science out there and some really cool conversations to have. Um, but with this one, I know that you are, um, you know, you kind of have a, a, a real passion for aquatic plants and, um, you know, identifying these is, is right up your alley. You know, and that's, it's fascinating to me and that most duck hunters don't really have a real strong understanding of, of what ducks are eating in these wetlands. And, and I wanted to kind of pick your brain on this and kind of just expand this conversation into, um, you know, what are some of these ducks keying in on when you see them in these, you know, smaller uh, wetland habitats, you know, marshes, things like that, that hunters key in on as well? So, so what are these ducks eating in these, in these small little wetlands? Always for ducks, it comes down to food. And if we sort of want to focus on these, what we, we'll call aquatic plants, um, you can kind of break that into two groups. One is a group of plants that grows in wetlands that have, in the growing season, exposed soil or exposed dirt. Um, those typically we would lump into the category of moist soil plants. Uh, hunters would know things like wild millet and some of the other. Most of these are annual seed producers, and they provide a lot of food for ducks. Uh, so that's one group. And, you know, think about most, almost all the puddle ducks feed, feed on those kinds of plants. Um, mallards, teal, pintails especially. Uh, then the other group that I think sometimes folks overlook but are really important to a suite of birds are what we would call the true aquatics. These are plants that will grow in standing water, in permanent water, uh, sometimes in, uh, in semi-permanent wetlands, you know, places that stay flooded for a couple of years and then might dry out for a little while. Those can also have stands occasionally. But when we're talking about that group of plants, these are plants that mostly are rooted to the bottom, either, you know, traditional sort of root system or a tuber system, something like that. But then they grow up towards the surface, uh, towards the sunlight. And these can be leafy plants, uh, things like pondweed, uh, or they can be, you know, sometimes we look at them, people will call them, you know, moss or something, but they're really things like coontail. Uh, the you know the thing that sort of looks like a bottle brush in, when you're looking at it in the water. So these are leafy plants, and there's a suite of species that kind of some of them really focus on them. Gadwall's widgeon uh, in the puddle duck family especially feed on the leafy portions of those plants. Uh, most of the diving duck community, uh, redheads, cans, and ringnecks in particular, have strong preferences for the leafy parts of the plants and hunters might know that the canvasbacks in particular have a bill structure that lets them dive down and dig up tubers with their bills. So they eat the actual root and tuber. Um, 
So those are the plants we're talking about here. Um, some of the some of the ones folks might see out there in freshwater would be pondweed, uh, sometimes called Potamogeton. Um, there are others that don't have real common names, Naas, N-A-J-S. It's actually a genus, but we refer, refer to it as also its common name. Um, but it's, a, it's similar to pondweed, tends to have narrower leaves, and it's a great one uh, for waterfowl food. Pondweed's a great one. Coontail's okay. Uh, gadwalls especially can make good use of coontail. Um, there are a couple of exotic plants that turn out to be fair waterfowl food. And, off the, and I'll put a disclaimer in here that hunters really should not spread these. Um, they exist uh, as escapes. And in some big lakes, they're problematic. Hydrilla is one of them. Um, but it turns out gadwalls and ringnecks eat it. And so, you know, maybe they, maybe in some small way, they help control uh, the plant, but usually it takes over. And, you know, bass fishermen and boaters will curse it because it'll choke up a lake pretty heavily. Um, Eurasian milfoil is the other one. Uh, a little bit less aggressive plant, um, but gadwalls and ringnecks can kind of key in on it. So what do you, you know, if you're a hunter, what are you looking for out there? Um, Basically, across the continent, these pl these plants occur across the continent. They're not restricted to the south or or anywhere in particular. And so, on for instance, big prairie wetlands that are pretty permanent, uh, you can find great stands of pondweed and others like it. And what you're looking for, usually, they'll reach the surface. And so, especially on when there's a windless day, which is kind of rare on the prairies, but you can see them, you know, they distort the surface of the water a little bit. Um, and even on a windy day, you can see that they break the wave action a little bit. So when you're scouting and looking out there, look for these, you know, these peculiarities in the surface of the water. And if you see them, go check them out. If you've got a little boat or if it's weightable, if it is aquatic vegetation, chances are it'll be a good spot uh, for a diving duck hunt or gadwall hunt and so that's the kind of thing you look for um, typically these plants are going to grow you know permanent water uh, anywhere from about 18 inches deep upwards to about eight feet deep if the clarity is good um, in murkier water you know the they have to get a little bit shallower again because they have to have sunlight and so sunlight has to reach the bottom uh, for them to to do their thing and so that's kind of what you're looking for. And, and sometimes the other things you can look for, concentrations of coots often are a giveaway for aquatic vegetation because they eat it too. And often you see, when you see coots, hunters probably know this, um, sometimes you'll see gadwalls and widgeon. The coots can dive a little deeper. And so they bring up the plant and then the gadwalls and widgeon steal it from them. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a little bit of a relationship there, but you can, uh, can use that as a hunter you can kind of use that to your benefit if you see those, those coots out there and they're starting to attract some gadwalls and you know you probably got a spot you can maybe shoot a few birds yeah and we talked about that you know earlier in the year people who are um, out fishing you know late fall yeah and or late summer i should say early fall and and you can kind of pinpoint some of these uh leafy aquatics that like you said you know bass fishermen would probably key in on uh, but once you pinpoint those, you know, you can kind of figure out ways to, uh, or I guess you should expect, you know, for some, some ducks to really kind of be seeking out some of the aquatics. 
one thing that you you touched on and and uh, and and I'd like to kind of expand on this because it is you know the way that some of these aquatics are growing is based a lot on water quality. Um, how important is that for these aquatics? And, and how, how do you, as like wetland managers who, you know, how, how are you judging that? Are you looking at a, a wetland and seeing these, um, you know, vast, you know, mats of aquatics and like, Oh, you know, the water quality here is what's in, you know, helping this or, or is it something, does it just go kind of hand in hand? Yeah. So that's a, it's a great question. And, and there's a, an, an unfortunate example that I can, I can draw on, but, for, and it's also an improving example. Hunters probably will recall and have read at some point about the Chesapeake Bay system, the historic flights, especially of diving ducks, canvas backs, redheads, the market gunning days. That was when the water quality in the Chesapeake was really good. Uh, the system back then was still, you know, the drainage area was still pretty forested. So the water coming into the bay was pretty clean and clear and wasn't loaded with nitrogen and phosphorus runoff from agricultural and feedlots and that sort of thing. Subsequently, with clearing and intensive agriculture, uh, the bay water quality changed a lot. It got a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus runoff. When that happens, you get these algae blooms. And when we're talking about algae, we're talking about small sort of single cell uh, plants, not ones that ducks can feed on. But they, what they do is they make the water really murky and sunlight can no longer hit the bottom. And when that happens, the aquatic plants that the ducks were feeding on died out. Uh, massive beds of things like wild celery were lost. And as a consequence, the ducks moved on. The ducks that are still there, you know, it's documented that canvasbacks kind of had to shift towards eating clams. The difference between eating a canvasback that's been eating wild celery and eating a canvasback that's been eating clams is remarkable and notable. And the latter is not all that good to eat. That's what happens is is basically when we talk about the importance of water quality, it's really about the water clarity. And water clarity often can be driven by sediment if there's too much sediment coming in. And if it happens to be sediment with nitrogen and phosphorus attached, that can drive that uh, algae bloom, that you know, pea soup green kind of water that folks sometimes see. That's what we're talking about. And when you get that condition, you really, really can't expect a good growth of those uh, important plants that are rooted to the bottom because they can't get sunlight. And so they're just not going to make it. They're basically shaded out. And it's be like, you know, it'd be a, the equivalent of trying to grow a garden under a bunch of oak trees. There's no sunlight. And so your crop production is not going to be great. Um, that's, that's what happens. And so when we see a good stand of aquatic plants that are valuable to ducks, we know that we have good water clarity and likely not a heavy nutrient load coming in that would sort of mark up the water. Yeah, you, you touched on, you know, the species specific variables with all these aquatics, you know, where you've got your diving ducks, you know, they're kind of focusing on the tubers and, you know, some of the little bit deeper vegetation, the green wings, pintails, mallards, you know, they're eating the seeds, um, gadwall and widgeon are, are eating that, those leafy uh, aquatics and, and more of the, the leaf of them, I guess I should say. Um, but you also touched on when that changes, you know, and this is always interesting and I've had this conversation multiple times, but when that changes, you know, the canvasback switches from the wild, the celery to the 
clam, you know, that, that changes the, the bird itself, you know, especially from a hunter's aspect of cooking it. But one that we all, one species we always talk about is gadwalls. And gadwalls are interesting to me because they are so wetland oriented. Um, it's not like you're going to find gadwalls out feeding in a cornfield. You know, these things are are keying in on these these wetlands for 100 percent of their food source or just about. And and up north in Canada, and I know you're very familiar with this, gadwalls are feeding on like an algae on occasion on some of these small potholes. Can you kind of explain how those gadwalls, they, they feed on this algae and really, you know, guys, some guys up there won't even shoot them because they have like a weird smell and an odd taste. Can you kind of explain that? Sure. Um, yeah. Hunting, hunting in Prairie Canada, there are folks who will absolutely not shoot a gadwall and it, it can be a bit of a lottery. If you do shoot a gadwall, it can be as good as one you shot in the Mississippi Valley, or it can be pretty foul and not very good to eat. And it all hinges on what the birds are eating. If your gadwall has been in a in a you know a typical prairie wetland with pondweed and some other plants like that, it'll be fine. If it has been on one of those alkaline wetlands, which are basically, you know, for lack of a better word, they're saltwater wetlands in the middle of the prairie. In those wetlands, there are algae that grow that gadwalls will feed on, and that is the time the gadwall that if you knew ahead of time, you would really not want to shoot because it's not going to be very good to eat. So that that's what happens there um, in you know, that, that prairie issue. Mostly, though, when those birds migrate south, it doesn't take them very long. And those alkaline wetlands are not real common anywhere else other than in the, you know, kind of in the Great Plains. There's some in Kansas, but not a lot. And so basically the birds, you know, by default shift into freshwater wetlands and that they rapidly improve in quality uh, in terms of table fare. And so you know, once you get out of, say, the Dakotas, gadwalls are a pretty safe bet. In just a few days, you know, they'll be having processed all that stuff out and, and their diet will have changed and they'll be a safe bet for the table. Um, gadwalls are a pretty interesting bird. You know, they're almost like the cows of the duck world. They're heavy, heavy grazers. They do mostly eat leafy vegetation along with some invertebrates like all ducks do. And the other thing they eat a lot of, we found out over the years, is they eat a lot of algae. And when we talk about that, it's not the one that I talked about that makes the pea soup green water. This is a filamentous algae. It's the one, if you're a bass fisherman and you've ever been worm fishing or spinnerbait fishing and you make a cast and it comes back with some stringy green, you know, for lack of a better word, the snot on it, yep. That that is what we're talking about. And that algae that filamentous algae can even it grows in and among and sometimes can take over a bed of aquatic plants it also will grow after they're flooded for a while on the stems of some of the seed producing annual plants and so gadwalls can make a go of that stuff very few other ducks do and so one has to wonder well how do they do that and the interesting adaptation they have, and we're going a little off course here, but it's really kind of interesting. No, yeah, it's great. Their, their intestinal length changes during the course of winter based on what they're eating. So if they're eating mostly leafy vegetation, you know, they'll have long intestines to process that because of all the cellulose and all that sort of thing. And as they shift further and further into towards the algae end, their intestines get longer and longer to process and extract the nutrients of which there are not many, but they can eat enough of it 
to, to stay pretty fat and healthy. So they're really specialized and have a really neat adaptation. All ducks' intestine length changes a bit, but gadwalls really seem to be the, the king of, of that adaptation. Uh, the other thing you know, we hadn't, we hadn't uh, discussed much about here is those same leafy aquatic plants are also pretty, can be pretty prolific seed producers. And so if they're in shallow enough water, say 18 inches or so or less, then it won't be uncommon to find, you know, the rest of the puddle ducks in there munching on the seeds. Um, pondweed in particular produces a nice, pretty nice big seed that uh, pintails, teal, mallards would, would easily find as a pretty nice morsel of energy out there. So another thing to kind of keep in mind when you're, when you're looking around. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. And searching those ducks out. I've heard several of our biologists, you know, talking about ducks and geese kind of keying in on these agricultural fields, flooded ag fields. And our biologists are like, man, that's, you would compare, if that's the only thing a duck ate, you know, you would compare that to ducks eating white bread all the time. You know, the, the varying, the variety of different food sources is what's key to, you know, healthy birds. Um, but how do those, you know, they, they always say, oh, you know, these native, some of these native grasses are much better at seed production than even the agriculture. So how do these, you know, aquatics compare in that world of, you know, seed producing? Do some of them produce, you know, a massive amount of seeds or is it, or is it more pointed, I guess I should say? Yeah, I would say it would be unusual to have comparable, uh, let's just say total, total energy, total, you know, if we take the sum total of the energy produced in the annual grasses of seeds and carbohydrates is really what we're talking about here and the sum total of seeds produced by aquatic plants, uh, it'd be substantially less on the, okay. on the aquatic plant side. And, you know, they're there, they're good food, but that is not their, you know, they're not prolific in the sense of, say, wild millet. Um, not even close. Okay. Uh, but it is an added source of food to go with the leafy stuff that, you know, no duck's going to pass up a meal. And so... They can they can make a go of it in there. You know, we always have this conversation, at least in my my mindset. You know, we have these conversations in fall and winter. But as as the a duck's life cycle, you know, continues into spring, you know, these ducks are shifting into eating invertebrates and you know crustaceans and all kinds of things, uh, more protein oriented foods. How important are are these? aquatics during spring migration as well. That was going to be a latitudinal thing where there is a, you know, a, an ice line. Most of those aquatics are going to die back just like the annual plants. And so what you end up with, say, north of about, I don't know, let's just say 32 degrees north or so, uh, what you end up with is this slurry of dead organic plant material in spring. Sounds really unfortunate, but it's actually really great because that is the substance on which most of the invertebrates make a living. And so as soon as that water warms up, the invertebrate population explodes. 
And that is what nesting ducks, nesting females in particular, are really keying in on. Um, if you get into the components of the egg, there's two, two, well, there's three important ones, but two inside the egg are the fat, which is the yolk. Um, and that's, that's a carbohydrate der derived product for a bird. And then there's the albumin, the clear or the egg white. If you fried the egg, that is a protein based substance. And so fat is something that can transport some of them like mallard can bring it with them or they can put it on pretty quickly based on seeds that are still present. They can eat them. But the proteins are large, complex structures that they really can't store very well. And so they have to acquire it from the environment. And invertebrates, uh, aquatic insects, are the primary source of protein for, for female mallards or female ducks in general to produce those eggs. So it's really important. Then later, as the growing season starts to kick, kick in, what we'll see is those aquatic plants will start to grow again and they'll start to reach for the surface. So about the time, you know, broods are hatched, you know, they're, the, the young ducklings are focused pretty heavily on invertebrates too because they're growing and putting on protein and muscle mass. But as they mature and about the time, you know, they're ready to start flying around, those aquatics will start to reach the surface. And so they have both the invertebrate and the aquatic plant food sources ready to to provide all the nutrients they need. No, that's great. And, you know, that kind of had me thinking about, you know, you're talking about the, the latitude issue, you know, as, as ducks get further North, obviously, you know, that, that aquatic vegetation is not necessarily available, especially in early spring. Uh, but down here, you know, as it, as we're hunting around the South and in, even in late winter, um, a lot of hunters are coming across, you know, these ducks are splitting up, they're bonding, um, you know, in January, you're starting to see these gadwall and mallards and all ducks really kind of, really kind of drifting into uh, some solitary areas and, and more like some flooded timber or maybe some cypress sloughs. You're starting to see these gadwalls really kind of separate from a big flock and pair up this time of year, you know, or later in the winter. What are these birds like focusing on? Are they all just, you know, are they switching from protein to uh, aquatics or, or back and forth? Um, is that something that, you know, I guess you could take a shot at, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird question, but you know, what are these birds focusing on in some of these, you know, solitary little areas? Well, that's a good question. Most of the solitary behaviors is what we would loosely refer to as pair isolation habitat. Okay. Um, what they're trying to do there really is stay away from unpaired males who are going to harass and try to break that pair bond and establish a pair bond with that female. And so that's really what's going on there. Um, in terms of the feeding behavior, there's probably some food in almost anywhere a duck is sitting. You know, there's going to be some invertebrates. That pair isolation habitat, if it's in shallow flooded timber, sure, there's going to be acorns and all kinds of invertebrates. If it's in deep flooded wetlands, you know, three feet deep, six feet, whatever, 20 sometimes down here. Um, then they're just looking to be isolated and then they'll have to go fly out to shallower areas to feed. Um, in winter, what we typically see carbohydrates are important throughout winter. So they're going to be looking for seeds, uh, to fuel, you know, day to day survival through, you know, inclement weather, cold weather, that sort of thing. And then as days lengthen, they'll start to, to undergo hormonal changes that will incite ultimately migration north and that's fueled again by fat 
and fat is put on by birds by eating carbohydrates. So they never really stop eating carbs. But what we also see in winter, especially for female mallards and female ducks in general, is they're undergoing a second molt. So down here, they'll be molting into the plumage that they're going to be sitting on the nest with that's a little more cryptic, a little more dull. Well, protein is the name of the game for feather production. Uh, feathers are made of keratin, keratin, which is a protein. And so, yeah, there has to be a component of invertebrate consumption during molt and really throughout winter. And it increases a bit during molt. And then we'll also see it start to increase as birds get closer and closer to the prairies. Uh, females start to shift and, you know, it's just sort of a natural probably shift as they move towards nesting and egg production. But it probably also reflects what's available. Mm-hmm. You know, as you go through winter, some seeds will still be carrying over through through winter and available in spring. But we just talked about that huge explosion of invertebrates that happens as the water warms up. And so, so ducks are going to eat what's readily and easily available. And so it partly reflects what's readily and easily available, but it also reflects the need for females to have that protein source for for feather production and then egg production. Kind of underlining the the overall theme, I guess I should say, of habitat variants. Um you know, different different types of habitat, you know, to support the entire life cycle of waterfowl. I think that that that's kind of what we've talked about, everything from the way that the aquatics grow, um, even in deeper water, you know, to shallow water into the invertebrates and, and just that variance is is what's really key. Before I let you go, I do have one question. We've talked about all these different types of ducks feeding and, and how they're how they're feeding. One question that I always get is, what are what are shovelers out there doing? What are the northern shovelers out there? And people see them, and they see them in these little pods, and they're spinning in circles. And I've all, I've had that question from several different people, like, man, what are they what are they doing? You know, why are they out in the middle of the field, kind of spinning in a circle? That's a really interesting behavior and a pretty neat adaptation. One of the things about ducks is you can look at their bill structure, and if you know what you're looking for, you can tell pretty much what their diet's going to be. So think about a widgeon bill for a minute. It's short, stubby, it's got a nail on the end, and it is made basically for clipping vegetation. They're grazers, and so that's what they do. Now everybody makes jokes about the the smiling, you know, Hollywood mallard shoveler. That's actually a highly adapted animal. Um, really cool bill. And so if you take the bill of a shoveler and open it, you see these long things hanging down called lamellae. So what they're doing when they're circling like that is they're creating this vortex. And in the vortex, small invertebrates, mostly uh, cladosterans, a small crustacean, get caught up and they start to concentrate and swirl up. And then that bill is just opening and closing. And every time it opens, it sucks in a mouthful of water that contains a bunch of cladosterans. Every time it closes, the water filters out and the cladosterans remain behind. And so the shovelers get in a steady diet of crustaceans when they're doing that. Shovelers tend to be more consumptive of invertebrates. You know, that's what they're adapted to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also can do the same thing in shallow water and filter, filter out seeds. And so they're not exclusively invertebrate feeders. And, you know, if you get one, you know, actually where I hunt, we shoot shovelers a fair amount of them sometimes and i found that rarely do i get one that's you know so strong and and that i question whether it's going to be table fair 
I don't think they're bad eating. They get a bad rap um, because they do eat a lot of invertebrates, but generally they're okay to eat. And, you know, they're like a magnum blue wing teal to me um, <laughs> in, in a way. And I know a lot of people will be laughing and poking fun at them and probably poking fun at me now, and that's okay. No, I don't. Often disrespected, highly overlooked. Um, you know, at, at at my place, we shoot a lot of shovelers too, and 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 really, you know, like you said, that as far as table fare, um, you know, most people couldn't tell the difference. Um, no, you, know, it, you really can't. And a lot of that's their diet. I can tell you when you clean a shoveler, I can tell you pretty quickly what most of its diet has been compromised though, just based on the appearance of the fat. If it's very orangey, um, they've been eating crustaceans. And if you think about a bird, you know, everybody probably knows about flamingos and how they get pink. Well, they get pink because they eat a lot of shrimp. And so that fat retains some of the pigments of the small crustaceans, which are reddish and results in a lot of orangish colored fat. If they're eating a lot of seeds, they're going to be white fat, just like any other green wing teal you ever shot. Um, so if you're, you know, if you want to sort your shovelers based on fat color and put the orangish ones, which might be a little stronger, although honestly, I don't think you can tell the difference, but you can put those in your gumbo meat and keep those nice white breasted ones for the grill or however else you'd like to cook them. But that's, that's, you know, that's a, a good way to gauge them. Oh, that's great. And I don't think, I think our listeners can probably use that information and, um, you know, really be able to, to gauge, you know, the. I guess, you know, the flavor of, of these, these ducks and by all means, I would definitely recommend to, uh, not, not steer clear of the, the Northern shoveler, like I said, often disrespected. No. And you know, you can have some fun too, is you can separate them and cook them both the same way, but keep them separate and do a taste test with your friends and see if they can even tell the difference. Yeah. That's a good idea to do for someone who is, uh, who's, who's a non shoveler shooter. You could always, you know, do the taste test with them. Yeah. And don't tell them, just tell them here's two different ducks. Which one you like. That's right. That's perfect. <laughs> Have a little fun with it. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I appreciate you joining me. This has been great. Uh, kind of brought to light a bunch of issues and some and a good topic in aquatic vegetation and something that you know our our audience and and listeners, hunters and conservationists can really kind of take a look at some of these wetlands and 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 look at some of these aquatics and and see which ones are you know more producing. Um, I will throw this out there though. You know, you kind of pointed me in the direction last summer. Um, in an app called iNaturalist, and yeah. uh, and it it offers the ability to be able to take a picture of vegetation or plants, animals, insects, whatever, um, and and it provides you with an identification. And so if you take that as a combination with a conversation like this, where you're looking for pondweed and coontail and things like that, if you don't know what that is, you can download that app. Um, iNaturalist. It has a combo app called iSeek where you can take the picture um, and be able to identify these these aquatic vegetation in, in all different wetland types. So um, I just want to throw that out there for people. And, and if, do you have any other recommendations on where people can learn more about you know some of these different uh, vegetations? Yeah, well, I use I, iNaturalist all the time. I really like it. And, you know, there's there's so many critters and so many plants out there. And I guess I'm kind of a nerd. I'm a biologist. And so I see something that I don't recognize and I just, you know, I, I kind of got to know. Um, but that's, that's by far one of the best ones out there. Um, you know, there's, there are online uh, websites. The University of Florida has an excellent plant identification website to include aquatics. 
Um, that's one I use uh, quite often when I'm online. But when I'm in the field, pretty much iNaturalist. If, I, if I'm stumped you know, or somebody sends me a picture and I'm stumped, I load that up to iNaturalist. It'll get you close. And if you work at it a little bit, you can even get the experts to, to back up and, and put a pretty firm ID on it if you, know, you really want to be positive on it. I'd recommend hunters download it if they're, you know, regardless of what you're hunting, you know, all wildlife out there is dependent upon food and food plants. And so knowing what's producing the food can really help, help you figure out the quality of your habitat and give you a, maybe turn the odds on a big old white-tailed buck or something. Always good information to have. Well, Tom, I appreciate you joining me today. That's been great, and we're going to have to have you back on real soon. I look forward to it, Chris. I enjoyed it, as I always do, and thanks for having me. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Tom Mormon, for joining me today um, and bringing to light some issues of some aquatic vegetation and even a little update on uh, providing a little test for, you know, taste testing shovelers. I'd like to thank our producer, Clay Baird, for getting this out to you guys. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.